We talk all the time about power heels and power suits and power dressing, but what does it mean to talk about fashion and power? Welcome back to the Women of Marvel podcast, where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. It's Judy Stevens. And I'm Angelique Rocher. And today we are talking fashion in comics. And how costumes in comics are designed. Later on the show, we're going to talk to artist Chris Anka. He has been working for Marvel for many years and has done tons of Marvel titles like Runaways, Captain Marvel, and really creates incredible costume designs. It's a fun, different way to kind of depict a story without words, just who they are. Plus, we're also going to hear from Dr. Valerie Steele, who is the director and chief curator of the museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology, about why it's really important to be talking about fashion in the first place. If we look back in time, if you study it, you can learn so much about how people felt about, say, women or about their bodies by what they wore. You know what? Speaking of fashion and comics, we have a guest host today, Emily Newcomen, who Yay! actually works works here at Marvel as a talent relations coordinator and also runs a weekly feature called Marvel's Best Dressed. Now, before we start looking for me on that list, because everyone knows how I like to put together <laughs> a good fit, let me point out you can only be eligible if you show up in the pages of our comic books. Guys, that means you have to draw me into a comic book now. I'm just saying I'm here for it. You have my permission. Nevertheless, welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. We're always excited to welcome another woman of Marvel here in the office. I actually want you to talk a little bit about what you do here. I work in the talent management group. It's a part of editorial. Uh, We help the group get their books cast based on um, styles, schedules, and things like that. I primarily, on a day-to-day, make sure that a lot of the variant covers get created Can you talk a little bit about what a variant cover is? So there's the main cover of a comic book, which is the main one. (laughs) But then there are other covers, secondary covers, with art that's separate from the main cover. And they give us the opportunity to approach different artists and uh, new artists. We have retailer variants, where if you own a comic book store and you want a special cover, I'm the one that helps you with that. I like to sprinkle my own little, like influence on them when I can. There's a Black Hat cover, Black Hat 9. It's a Gwen Stacy variant, and Black Hat is robbing a new Coleman Jewelers. So everyone go out and buy it. So what you're saying is you're going to be on the next list of best dressed, right? Yes. She's clearly closer than I am, and I don't know how I feel about it. Guys, you got to get this done. Um, so in all of this and all of this other great, amazing work that you do, you run this column of Best dressed. So what exactly is Marvel's best dressed? So it started off as a tweet in 2017 that I sort of ran with. So I was like, okay, how can we bring more attention to each week's books on sale in a way that would make someone like me stop and open up the tweet? I've always been drawn to more fashionable style related things. Like even in the back of magazines at the grocery store, like the best and worst dress list, like that was like my jam. I loved that. So yeah, it goes out three picks from that week's new comic books on sale. And it's just to bring attention to the art, the characters, and most importantly, that week's new books on sale. Okay, so now I have to know, like how 
one, how do I get on the list? Two, um, <laughs> how do you pick? Like, there's so much, right? There's so many books that are coming out, but also there's a lot of folks in these comic books, right? Particularly when you're talking about big team ups and crossovers. Like, what goes into selecting this list each week? I go through all the covers and then I go through all the interiors and I whittle it down to three. To qualify, it can't be a background character. Like, it has to be a named Marvel character. Poor Anjali. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> this is looking less I'm and less sorry. likely for me. It's fine. Um, regular costumes, like Spider-Man's regular costume really doesn't qualify because he's been wearing it forever. But if he, like, has some fun embellishment on it that week, then, like, cool, we can include that one. If it's a new design, like Thor got a new costume design for this new run for Thor 1 then it would qualify because it's new but I'm not going to use it again for issues 2 or 3 because like we've seen it whatever and throwback looks also count so Mm. if like Black Widow's in her like old 60s look like I will usually always include that but I wouldn't include her normal everyday costume what we haven't talked about yet is you studied fashion so this is not just like something that popped out of nowhere like (laughs) how did you make the jump from fashion to comics I went to FIT. It was a good time. FIT is the Fashion Institute of Technology here in New York City. Yeah. I got my associate in illustration. And then after two years of that, I was kind of like, okay, I don't think that this is the career path for me. Wasn't your jam? I mean, I didn't want it to be like my career jam. You know what I mean? So then I switched to marketing because I thought, okay, I could still be creative this way. With what I learned in illustration, I could visualize the things that, you know, the projects and stuff I'd be doing there. But I also didn't want to let a lot of the art go. So I ended up minoring in art history. And I feel like all three of those things gave me the skills and the opportunity to get an internship here when I was a senior. So we've been talking a lot about costume design and looking at the many fashion choices that go into a single issue of comics is incredible. But why... Is it important to talk about fashion in the first place, right? And how can we talk about fashion in a deeper way? Because, you know, we like to go deep here at Women of Marvel. So we were actually very excited to be joined by Dr. Valerie Steele, who is the director and chief curator of the museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology here in New York City. And they actually have an exhibit right now all about power in fashion. And I definitely had like a couple fangirl moments because I really love history of fashion. It's really great. Let's welcome Valerie to the podcast. Well, welcome, Valerie. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'm very excited to talk to you because when we started working on this episode, I was like, why don't we ask the curator at the FIT Museum? The exhibits that you guys put on there are so phenomenal. Oh, thank you. we got a great team of curators there. It's fabulous. Can you talk a little bit about like the museum and like what people can find there? Sure. The museum at FIT is dedicated to the art of fashion. We have a permanent collection of more than 50,000 garments and accessories from the 18th century to the present. Actually, we even have a 17th century pair of high-heeled men's shoes. And we put on four fashion exhibitions a year, so they're staggered. So anytime you come, there's almost certainly going to be at least one, if not two, fashion exhibitions up. So you have an exhibit open right now that's called Power Mode, The Force of Fashion. Can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. We talk all the time about power heels and power suits and power dressing, but what does it mean to talk about fashion and power? Clothes don't actually have any power like an army does or a generator does. It's something that 
people create and people think of. So this exhibition explores the different aspects of power that are expressed in fashion, whether it's socioeconomic power, sexual power, military power, or the power of rebellion. This all sounds amazing. Hopefully everyone is making a note. If you live in New York City or if you're going to be traveling, make sure the FIT Museum is on your list. But let's take a step back, actually. Valerie, how did you get started in fashion? Well, like many people, I was always interested in fashion. When I was younger, I wanted to be an actress, which is all about dressing up. Then I went to get my Ph.D., at Yale, which is already weird because I'm a high school dropout, but I went to get my PhD at Yale in modern European cultural and intellectual history. And the first term there, we had to give reports on two articles from a scholarly journal. And I don't even remember mine. But my classmate, Judy Coffin, spoke about two articles from the feminist journal Signs, arguing about the meaning of the Victorian corset. Was it oppressive to women or was it sexually liberating? And it was like a light bulb went on. And I realized, fashion's part of culture. I can do fashion history. So that changed my whole life. From then on, it was all fashion history. That sounds like the dream thing to study. Well, it made me unemployable for 10 years, which was not so oh, dreamlike. Oops. oops. <laughs> <laughs> so what actually goes into the actual month-to-month experience of putting a show together? Well, even before the close, you have to come up with an idea. So I want something which is going to make a real original contribution to the history of fashion. So, for example, when I did Gothic Dark Glamour, there had been shows about subculture and how it influenced fashion, but nothing specifically on that particular subculture. And my thesis was that the designers were not just copying the goth kids, but the designers and the goth kids were inspired by a whole series of visual and literary sources, including vampire movies, you know, and early literary horror. From that, they drew out the idea of the clothes. And so once I got that idea, then I could go out and go, all right, well, part of what they're attracted to is Victorian morning clothes. So let's get some morning clothes. Part of it is vampire movies. So let's see if we can get something from Bram Stoker's Dracula, that kind of thing. So I want to do shows which can speak both to connoisseurs and experts who know how to make the clothes, you know, from inside out, and people who are just have a kind of casual interest in fashion. Each show brings different people. Gothic brought lots of young people and subcultural people in. When we did denim, a lot more men came than usual. Uh, so it varies a lot. And we try and, and have it be not all modern and not all historical. I mean, I'm trained as a historian, so I know for most people history is the H word. It's boring. But if you can tie it up connected with now, you can say, this 18th century corset is related to you know, Vivian Westwood's, related to all of his other things. Then they get interested. I'm that person who went to Paris to the fashion museum to literally press my face up against the glass of Marie Antoinette's corset. Yes, yes, her wonderful corset and her wonderful shoe. I mean, there's so little of her clothing left. It was either destroyed or, or just passed out to somebody else. So we're here at Marvel, obviously, and as much as I would love to talk <laughs> history and fashion with you forever, let's talk a little bit about, you know, obviously comics have been being made for a long time, yes. and the fashion in them is actually really important, especially the superhero suits, the outfits that our heroes wear. What are some of the ways that you see comics interconnecting with fashion today? I think there's a definite connection, because both comics and movies and TV, these are all aspects of popular culture. And whether you're costuming an imaginary person that you're drawing or an actor in a film, it's really a similar issue if it's the same kind of character. 
And we find certain things that come up over and over. The second skin suit, for example, so that it just traces the physically impressive body of the superhero or superheroine, and yet it covers them up, so it's still modest enough. And yet that goes all the way back to the idealization of the body from ancient Greece. And then you also get the idea of the armored body. That's super important in a lot of heroes, so that it's almost like a knight in armor, which again kind of fits in with the idea of them being the hero and also protecting that body. Whether it's the second skin, their muscles act as a kind of armor, or whether you literally pad them out and have armored plates on it. Mentioning the knights also reminds me how so many superhero costumes are historicizing. In an effort to look timeless, they look back at the ancient past and often at the Middle Ages. So these are all things that feed into our images of superheroes. And definitely so do fashions because the same kind of people who are fashion designers, they're watching TV, they're reading graphic novels and comics, and they're influenced by that kind of thing. Just like the designers were influenced by you know, vampire films, they're influenced by comics too. And when they envision what would a hero or heroine look like, they often think in those terms. In the Power Mode show that we have up now, we have a, a silver metallic bodysuit that looks like an armored second skin outfit. And this is by Philippe Plain, and it really looks like a superhero outfit. And another more floaty silver outfit next to it by Gareth Pugh. And both of those conjure up how designers and the people who create superhero costumes are thinking often the same things. What's the idealized body? And what's the idealized person? If you wanted to envision a, someone who would be your hero and save you, what would he or she look like? Also, power suits, the idea of yes. a man wearing like a well-fitted suit. A lot of Marvel characters, like we'll reference Daredevil, who by night is this superhero armored spandex character, but by day, he's a lawyer. Yes, absolutely. And the suit is a uniform of a different kind of power. It's a, it's a uniform of socioeconomic power, of traditionally of male power, although women have now appropriated the power suit. A lot of superheroines and superheroes wear boots as well. And that's something that comes from the idea of military power, that soldiers, and particularly chevaliers, knights in armor, they wore boots. If you put boots, that means that you're powerful. You're there. You've got this kind of military physical prowess. From ancient Rome on, if you had one fighter wearing boots and another in sandals or bare feet, who was going to win the fight? The one in boots. Unless it's a really great pair of stilettos. <laughs> exactly. Because there are definitely characters in movies still kicking butt with their stilettos on. Particularly stiletto boots, however. The symbolism of the boot and the actual power and symbolism of the stiletto. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And we talk about that, too. That even many women who are totally feminist, someone like Robin Givon, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The Washington Post, I was in an interview with her and I said, when do you feel most powerful? She said, when I'm wearing high heels. I mean, I understand that. As much as they hurt my feet. And you're taller, too. Let's face it, that's part of it. So it's 2020. 
superhero movies have been, they're everywhere. Do you think that as we look at more and more superheroes, do you think fashion is going to reflect that? I think that's an entirely valid hypothesis. It's going to be some designers more than others. It'll be the designers who tend to have younger clients, more edgy clients. It'll be more likely to be Versace than Armani. But you might even have, you know, an Armani who will take an element from something. Someone like Ralph Simmons, for example, has often drawn on things that were part of a youthful, edgy, subcultural world. So someone like that will be very likely to take something from superhero costumes. I mean, especially right now as the 90s is like everywhere in fashion. Everywhere. I really see old comic movies from the 90s being really reflected in fashion nowadays. I think that's really valid. And since we're doing a show on 90s fashion, I'm going to maybe take you up on that and try and get some superhero costumes in there and look for designers who are inspired by that. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's been curating shows and working on this journal, why do you think it's important? And this is a, sort of a big question. Why do you think it is important to document and preserve and also study the history of fashion? I think the history of fashion is such an important part of who we are. It's such an important part of who each of us as an individual is. And it's also such an important part of our culture. So that if we look back in time, if you study it, you can learn so much about how people felt about, say, women or about their bodies by what they wore. And in the same way, even people now who say they're not interested in fashion, you say, well, does your mother pick out your clothes? And they go, no, of course not. It's very important that my clothes reflect who I am. And it says a lot, too, about the group of people that you identify with. In the past, it was much more about your gender, your social class, your nationality, those are still important, but it's even more about your interests and your aspirations. So if you're into skateboarding or you like a particular kind of music, that's a much more personal thing that you're expressing in your clothes. Thank you so much for joining us, Thank Valerie. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Valerie Steele for stopping by. She was fabulous. If you want to find more of her work, she has co-authored more than two dozen books on the history of fashion. So there is plenty to read. And make sure you guys are going and checking out what's happening at the museum at FIT. They have multiple exhibits throughout the year. The power exhibit is on right now, and you can find more if you go to fitnyc.edu. So we have another special guest joining us today. Wait, another? Oh my God. This is a packed fold podcast. I mean, it's like fashion is all reaching and all encompassing. I don't, I don't know what to do. It's like everyone loves fashion. Everyone does love fashion. You know who loves fashion? Who? Chris Anka. Oh. Oh, does he? <laughs> he also loves good covers and expressing his love of fashion through lots of different covers. I know he's done a, a number of variant covers, Emily, and you've you've kind of worked mm -hmm. with him on a couple. Yeah. Um, recently, he and I have worked on two together. And when I say he and I, I mean he. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, they come back beautiful. The thing I love about Chris's work is that his stuff is literally like you look at it and you're like, I could wear that tomorrow. Like it's so real. I, and his runaway stuff, I mean, it's everything he does is so good. I kind of just want to dress like Alex Wilder. So let's be very real. Like the way he dresses Alex Wilder. Yep, that was Chef's Kiss right into the mic. <laughs> well, let's welcome Chris to the podcast. 
Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's good, you know, it's relaxing. Not really, but you know. <laughs> I was about to say, what? <laughs> I've never heard that come out of your mouth. No, no God, no. <laughs> so, Chris, you've had a love of art your entire life. And you've always had this appreciation for animation um, and this appreciation for comics. Talk to us a little bit about your training as an artist. I, I don't even know if there was a start. It was just something that I always did. And I just never stopped doing it. It was the one thing that came easier to me. I went to an arts high school in L.A. And then, you know, the goal is to go to an art college. And I got into CalArts, so I went for animation. And so basically that training was four years of telling stories and how to do characters. So when it was time to do comics, it was kind of an easy transition. Because, you know, I was drawing Marvel fan art all the time, and I've been doing that since I was 11. It was more the comic making was the hard thing to kind of, like, learn. But the telling of the stories and drawing these characters kind of came natural at that point. How do you find that uh, costumes communicate story and character? So I think this actually directly relates to the fact that I went to an animation school. And one of the things you learned was that you can tell a whole lot of story through the design. And usually with animation, the fundamental thinking was that you you do it through like shape language. And the cliche was like, you know, an angry character is triangles and then like a stoic character is a square and then a soft character is a circle. And you sort of learn how to tell these stories through the most rudimentary design language because you wanted it to be translated as easily as possible. You wanted everyone to be able to pick up on it quickly. You wanted people to already start knowing about the character before a word is even said. And part of that kind of just translated into clothing, you know, what they wore, how they wore it. So you just sort of start thinking about, you know, if you you take a a hoodie, no five characters are going to wear a hoodie the same way. No five people are going to wear a hoodie the same way or what kind of hoodie, what style of hoodie. And you just have to sort of think about who these characters are. And, and at least with Marvel, the characters are so old and classic that it's not hard to get into their heads. You know, it's not hard to understand what Wolverine is and how he's different from Jean Grey and, and Scott Summers. So when you start dressing them, you just start thinking of like who that person is and how would they go shopping for clothes? What clothes would they find? What would they put on? And I mean, especially Wolverine. Like, I think he's got an incredibly distinct fashion sense. Hmm. I mean, when I think of Wolverine shopping, I think of him at like a vintage store, yeah. buying like the cheapest thing uh, yeah. that he could find, buying that it really ratty quickly. leather jacket. Yeah. That's or like, what I like see. he buys flannels from a gas station. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, a road, like a road trip. Utilitarian, man. (laughs) Maybe he Um, washes it in the sink. Maybe he doesn't. Exactly. If he washes it at all, it's probably going to burn up. Um, So you just kind of start applying that to these characters. And it it gets trickier with going into like Runaways and stuff like that, where it's like younger characters and newer characters where the legacy isn't quite so solid. And it's almost more fun because then you have more leeway to really kind of hash out what their fashion language is to the world. But you've actually really helped in the last like five or six years here at Marvel help redesign some of our characters. I mean, all the way back in 2014 with Spider-Woman. What's the process for you of taking an existing character and creating a new look for them? It's a rough process. And a lot depends on the editor I'm working with and sort of their tastes. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And we try to find something that kind of works for everybody. So every job is a little different. You know, designing Wolverine was different than designing Storm and Psylocke, which was different than designing Jess. 
And one of like the first steps I'll take is I'll look at all of their costumes. I try to get a pool of all of their looks and kind of see if there's any through lines, see if there's any motifs that are always sort of there. And I'll try to keep that because I think if you sort of keep the heart of what their looks are, you can kind of play around a lot and it still will feel like the character. A lot of it depends on what the job is requiring of the look. So, you know, with, with Spider-Woman, they wanted this very street look for her. They wanted to transition from sort of this classic leotard superhero to sort of this... The word that was used to me was like a bouncer. Like Jess was going to like defend Ben Yurik. So I had to like figure out someone who could work in the classic Marvel street-level hero kind of vibe, but still sort of retain the spider motif and the spider color, but needed to work in sort of this darker environment. So it was about kind of trying to ground her look. And then, you know, I was asking a bunch of women I knew, like, what would you wear if you had to, like, be athletic at night? Like, what kind of pants? Because, like, jeans aren't really flexible unless you really break them in. What kind of boots would you want to wear? So I was kind of, like, using that. And then also trying to balance the fact that, you know, this is a superhero world. So I don't want it to be, like, really, really mundane and Jess was a she was like a former agent of shield so you could have weird fabrics and stuff like that and really play with the technology of what fashion can be in this world I mean we've had unstable molecules since the 60s you know clothes that can land on fire like one of the things I wanted like her mask to be something that can be contained in like a little tiny lens that she pops on and then it can grow into this kind of superhero look but also can just be sunglasses if she wanted it to be it's such a cool process that you go through on balancing everything you just said about the form and functionality mm. with the actual personality of the character right like yeah i mean you know how much i love the runaways so this is just going to go back to the runaways always back to gert and chase always yeah. uh, um how much do you balance the look of the character's costume with the function but also about who they are as a character the very first step was I built a wardrobe for all the kids. And so I would have just hundreds of pieces of clothing options for each of these characters. And, and Rainbow and I spent weeks on this and we're going back and forth. I mean, infamously with, you know, with the Gert and the makeover with Gert, that took us a year to figure out from when we first discussed it to me actually drawing the issue. Like that took us a full year to really nail down what we wanted Gert to be. Because we were sort of, you know, refining her as sort of the characters also refining herself, being brought back to life. And, you know, since Gert was created back in like 04 to now, the you know, style has changed so much, fashion has changed so much, and that was kind of the story. But it also made it really hard to figure out what to do with her. And, you know, it was always funny, it was whenever I was doing these style guides for each character, was I always would forget that these things take me like a full day themselves. And so I would never time for that. So I'd like always have this schedule built out and then I always forget that I need a full day just to design all their clothing. So I'm not sure everyone may be aware of what a style guide is. Would you care to explain uh, what purpose they serve and what you think about when you go into creating them? I enjoy when you tweet them and we have some up here. I also am very excited uh, that Old Lace is also in the style yes. guide, and <laughs> also, I appreciate you for that. <laughs> well, so it, it all kind of started originally with just, I had to sort of like nail down these costumes. I knew that these costumes would be coming up a lot, and just for myself, I'm a reference-heavy person, and I'll 
over years of you know drawing comics, if I don't have a reference for something, I will accidentally either change it or I will constantly keep going back to find it. So I decided with this, since I had these wardrobes, instead of having to like keep trying to find pieces of clothing, I just wanted them all readily available in one image. And you know, with old days being there, it was also to work as a height chart, hmm. so I could always keep the heights of all these characters accurate and and, and never change. But it's mostly there just kind of for me to keep these details accurate because what I didn't want to have for the book was that, you know, just kids just wearing plain t-shirts and plain jeans. I appreciate um, they were that. They're very specific pieces of clothing. So I just wanted to always be accurate with it. You know, how many stitches, uh, what's the lacing up on the side patterns. And so it just sort of helped me keep track of everything. And then just as we kind of built it, it also allowed me to pre-plan outfits before I needed them. And then it's sort of like made a fun little Easter egg for the books. I mean, I will say as a cosplayer, I thank you <laughs> for making style guide images that I could reference when I make costumes. It's funny because like, I think that kind of actually did influence because early on, um, I would have cosplayers hit me up for like the Silac design and the Storm design because they wanted to make it. But like, I, you know, I, I don't really have a good reference of the back. So I started getting into this habit of doing these sort of full turnarounds of these characters to literally give to cosplayers. But then it sort of helped me keep these things in mind. So then I just kept doing it more and more. So that by the end, you know, I was doing like full 360 turnarounds and having all the details figured out. You know, how does the wings on Jess's costumes look? Where are the claw slits on Wolverine's costume? So by the time I got to Runaways, it was just sort of a natural step. Uh, just the difference was that it was changing every month rather than just doing one design and being done with it. Where do you get your references when it comes to costume, when it comes to whether it's street clothes or an actual like, I'm in my superhero gear? What are some of the references you tend to use to design these out? Well, for the street clothes, with Runaways, it's like, I know I grew up in LA. And it's because these kids are from LA, it's, they're all people that I see every day outside. And so I'll just kind of keep track of the type of people I'll see and the type of clothing they'll wear. And so I'll spend hours a day just on Pinterest going down rabbit holes and just sort of putting things away. Like, you know, while I was still on the book, I would just constantly be building up these wardrobes with options and ideas, seeing cuts that people would wear. And if you spend the time, there's reference everywhere. I mean, there's Instagram, Twitter, outside, movies. You just have to sort of build this mental library of all these things. And it, it kind of became easy, and especially once, you know, Rainbow would give me the script and would call for a very specific activity, I would then just go through my head of like, well, what kind of pajamas would Chase wear? Would Chase wear pajamas? Would he, you know, would he just sleep in his underwear? Things like that. <laughs> and I would sort of sit there and figure that out, and then that would sort of dictate what to do. You know, I think also part of it is just personal aesthetic and just me sitting there like, yeah, I don't feel like drawing that kind of shirt. I want to dress something a little bit more fun than that kind of shirt. It was particularly tough with Runaways and sort of that time jump because it's, you know, it's like 15 years and these kids have aged, what, two? So to go from like what these styles were and what these fashion tropes were in the early 2000s to what they are now and whether they even exist at all, it does take kind of like a, a leap. Molly was tough. Molly was a very difficult one because Molly had this very, very cutesy style with these sort of like big animals and big shapes. So with hers, it was a lot more like pastel colors and kind of big clothing shapes, just like sweaters or tights in sort of these things where they're, they're bold shapes, but they're not quite as 
loud and cutesy on her anymore. So you've worked with a lot of our characters in the Marvel Universe. Out of the whole tapestry, who has your favorite costume? Like superhero costume that I've done or just any, just in general? How about, uh, what's your favorite Runaways look? Because well, this is a hard question, right? Uh, Emily's putting you on the spot. Yeah, she uh, just like, spot. give me your deepest, darkest secret. I need it now. And then I'm going to continue that. Okay, so your favorite Runaways costume and your favorite redesign of the look that you've done for us. Hmm, all right. My favorite Runaways costume is probably going to be issue 12 Carolina gown. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, yeah. Just because that one one was a lot of legwork. Like, that was a full, I was just begging Rainbow to let me do a gown look at some point. For those who may not, and you should go read it, like, right now, uh, seeing the gown you're talking about on Carolina, like, walk us through what the gown looks like. It starts off as, like, a very, like, light pink gown, very simple top, just sort of a two-strap that goes down to this kind of really wide gown area, hips below, but it's got this lacy frill in the front. And then the gown sort of goes from a light pink to a very dark magenta. And at the very bottom of the gown is sort of a constellation of stars coming up from the ground up. And then that sort of transitions into a full sort of pink and magenta floral lace pattern that goes from the frills all the way up through her top. And then her hair, I had be pulled back into a high knot, but the hair turns into a bow shape in the back. There's star glitter all through that as well. And then I have glitter highlights on her cheeks. The detail is amazing because I'm sitting here looking at the picture and I'm like, I never noticed what was in her hair, but there it is. Yeah, I I remember seeing a bunch of photos when I was just pulling like hair reference, uh, when I was pulling these looks out for all these characters. People do really fun like roses in their hair, like made of their hair, and like with with like with braids. Like they do these really intricate patterns, but it is it felt too much given like kind of the chill vibe that everyone's always like wearing in this book. So when there was a chance to dress them up, I was like, I have to use everything that I've wanted to do with these characters that doesn't really allow me to use often, because you know the rest of it is just styling. That issue was the first time I ever actually got to be a fashion designer and like design clothing for them. I want to say, Chris, that you are a fashion designer. The aesthetic and the styling that you bring to your characters, you're truly a fashion designer. People cosplay your looks. Come on. Yeah, I mean, we, I, guess, I guess with like the superhero costumes, absolutely. But thank you, man. It's fun. It's a lot of fun for me. It's a fun, different way to kind of depict, you know, the story without words, just who they are. In terms of redesigned costumes, it might honestly have to be... Psylocke. Mm. It's between Psylocke and Storm. (laughs) I knew what I called it. We've had a lot of conversations about Psylocke. Psylocke was my very first one. And I think it's one of the more definitively me looks. I remember getting the email. And it was just like, design a look for Storm and Psylocke. And I was just sort of like blown away for like a day. But just sort of to have these kind of characters in my hands. It was a very clear vision I had. And I think it translated pretty well. I mean, yeah, I love that look. It just really fits her as a character so well. For a second, I was like, are you going to say Captain Marvel and that I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. how many seams are in my costume? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's entirely my fault. So like, Jonathan's like, ah, it's just so much flat blue. Uh, I just want to break that up a little bit. I mean, it, it does work. It gives her depth and texture and also functionality. You gave her 
a utility belt. When I wear that costume, I can bring my phone with me. Yeah, <laughs> that's always the one thing. Everyone's like, I can carry my phone now. Um, it's all these minor things. Like just like the chest lines, like what's going on the sides. Like I took that from her Warbird costume back in like the Avengers run. Because oh. um, that was always the look I really loved, and it was, you know, it's one of those things. Of, like there's always these character designs or these costumes that like get replaced, but have like little fun details. Then any chance I can kind of bring that back. I tried to. So, yeah, I just took that from the Warbird and sort of simplified it and sort of applied it to Jamie's Captain Marvel design, sort of just to add a little touch to it, but still made it feel like this was something that was already Carol's. Well, Chris, I wish we could talk to you about design and fashion all day. Where can fans find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at just at Christopher Anka. Go follow her. Yeah, right now. Go follow him, like, right now. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Chris. Of course. So thanks again to Chris for joining us. Uh, To hear more about Chris and his work, I actually had an amazing conversation with him on Marvel's Voices back in November 2018. All of that's available anywhere you listen to a podcast. Yeah, man, just the way he describes style guides and his inspiration and and just our large conversation on thighs because they, they influence the way clothes move in the comics, particularly when you're dealing with superheroes, right? I mean, I always love when characters don't look like they forgot like they. Thick thighs save lives, literally. Yes. And make sure you guys swing over to our Instagram page at The Women of Marvel. We're going to be posting the character style guides that we were talking to Chris about. So make sure you guys uh, are checking that out. I'm going to turn the tables on you guys now, though. Who are your best dressed faves here? Wait, does it have to be like recent or can we just like do best dress overall? Anything your heart desires. Look, man, everybody knows what my answer is. It's Monica Rambeau. She got her costume from a costume closet in New Orleans. We love New Orleans. Yeah, we love New Orleans. We love Mardi Gras. I love putting together a good hodgepodge of different pieces into a costume because I feel it's form and function. I mean, when I think of Mardi Gras costumes, I literally think of that. That's all I'm saying. All I'm saying, Monica Rambeau, also for ingenuity and style. Boom. Judy? Um, I, of course, couldn't pick one. (laughs) (laughs) I am absolutely loving Betsy Braddock's new Captain Britain costume um, in the Excalibur book. Uh, Issue six is coming up, so you guys should go pick it up. Facts. Uh, Teeny Howard amazing um but the costume's so great i mean i love i love a girl with some dyed hair and uh betsy rocks it and then of course obviously i clearly have to pick a captain marvel option i actually forced myself not to pick captain marvel (laughs) to begin but i'm actually currently making the new design from captain marvel's the end um carol is wearing this sort of like white glowy sort of version almost like she's coming out of space so i'm making that i'm gonna be wearing it at katsukan it's very ethereal it is very ethereal. I love it. Me too. Of course, bought fabric that wasn't stretchy enough, and I have to do it. <laughs> Cosplay problems. Uh, I do also have to shout out, now that you said Teeny Howard, I have to shout out that uh, that good blade that is in Strike Force. Oh. It's very blade, but it's also like very edgy blade. I like blade. I mean, blade is, he wears one color. He, he knows what he's wearing. He's like a New Yorker. I'm going to wear black, and that's what I'm wearing. But he seems to somehow make it look more stylish. He's consistent. Yeah. I like a good consistent, also a good trench. Mm. Mm, (laughs) A good trench. So if you are listening and you guys have a favorite Marvel outfit, we want to see it. 
Tweet at us, at Marvel, using the hashtag Woman of Marvel, or you can email it to us at womenof at marvel.com. So where can folks stay up to date with things? Yeah. Where can they find you? Yeah, where can we find you on the internet, Emily? I'm at Emily Newcomen on Twitter, and uh, that's all. And also make sure you guys are checking out the best dress list on mm-hmm. Twitter weekly and on marvel.com monthly. Oh, wait, before we go, I hear... I hear that there's going to be a Women of Marvel panel at C2E2 in just a few weeks because C2E2 is only a few weeks away. Oh, my God, it is. Uh, There will be a panel. It's going to be on Sunday, March 1st at 12.15 p.m. That's 12.15 p.m. Central Time, not Eastern Time, uh, in room S401. Please come. Yes, please come. We will have a great group of panels that we'll get to announce in the upcoming weeks. Plus, the This Week in Marvel panel is on Friday. And if you can't be at C2E2, don't worry. We're going to be recording both the Women of Marvel panel and the This Week in Marvel panel. It's a party for everyone. Until next time, this is Marvel. Your universe. This episode of Women of Marvel was produced by Rebecca Seidel and Zachary Goldberg. It was hosted by me, Judy Stevens. And me, Anjali Crochet. Our development manager is Kieran Heffa. And Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Thanks for listening.